So today we read about a miraculous catch of fish. Now, the story in Scripture plays out a little differently than the miraculous catch I recently saw. But the one that I recently saw uh, looked like this. Uh, Each year uh, we go on a men's fishing trip and um, we catch trout in Twin Lakes that are measured in pounds instead of inches. Now, this is foreign to me. Um, You see, the catch limit when it comes to trout and things like that uh, is eight inches long, right? Uh, We don't even talk inches on the fish that we catch in this lake by Phil's cabin there. Uh, We talk more about pounds, which I didn't know you could do with trout. You see, I'll show you what I'm used to catching. Now, there's a reason that's not a picture of me standing holding a fish, because my hand would, I mean, the scope doesn't work, right? My hand would completely cover uh, the fish that I caught. I'm used to, what's that? That's bait. Yeah. Yeah. Phil says that looks more like bait. That's exactly right. Right. That is a legal catch in the little streams that I grew up or, or I've spent so much time fly fishing in in the mountains. Um, you know, sometimes uh, the miraculous catches are exactly what we need. And what a fun experience to get out there and catch amazing, amazing fish. But if I'm honest, my favorite fishing experience in life was catching fish just like that little one there. Uh, it was a few years ago. It was in the middle of a pandemic and we went up to the family family cabin into a tiny stream. And uh, it was just Sarah, myself, and our girls there. And uh, our girls learned to fly fish on that trip. And everyone caught a, a, a number of fish and a number of keepers, just small fish like that. Um, they learned how to clean a fish, and then we, you fry them uh, in, in a pan over a fire, right? And, and this experience of just learning all of this together, the experience of cooking that meal together, and then my kids for the first time in their life liking the flavor of fish because they had caught that fish and they had participated in the process of preparing it and then cooking it. Uh, it, was, it was really a remarkable thing. Here's the point we're going to make today. Uh, in the presence of Jesus, we will experience miraculous things. We'll also experience ordinary things that are incredibly rich. So let's dig into the text today. We're continuing a series in the Gospel of John. Uh, We're in John chapter 20 at this point, very near the end of this Gospel account. John is one of Jesus' closest followers. He sat down late in his life to write an account of all that he experienced walking with Jesus, and he writes for the purpose of us coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, as the hope for this world. We find ourselves now, uh, after Jesus' crucifixion, His apostles, his closest followers, are just lost and confused, and you'll see that in the text today as we read. But Jesus has risen from the dead, and he's begun appearing to his apostles and other people. But apparently there's still great confusion as to exactly what's happening in this moment. I'm going to read our text today in its entirety, John chapter 20, uh, beginning in, that's verse 1. Verse 1, I have it written wrong. John 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathan from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing a net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dare ask him, who are you? They knew that it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was risen from the dead. We meet Jesus and his apostles in uh, a critical moment. You see, Jesus has accomplished the greatest victory. Having died on a cross, he conquered sin, and having risen from the dead, he invited the world to know new life and, and new hope in him, to know resurrection life. Jesus has accomplished the ultimate victory. God in Jesus has accomplished the ultimate victory. And here his disciples sit in the greatest shame of their life. You see, they had, as soon as Jesus was arrested, scattered and hidden, very few were there as he's crucified. They're hiding out in little houses and rooms around Jerusalem and Israel, afraid of Israel coming and arresting them too. They've completely abandoned him. They've lost hope and they're confused. We thought he was the Messiah, but none of this is playing out the way it expected to. We find Jesus having accomplished the greatest victory and his closest followers experiencing the greatest shame of their life. Now, it's important to understand a little bit about the context and the people we read. In our Western world, we think about society and relationships and uh, legal systems in very different terms than the Israelite people who wrote Scripture did in the first century. You see, we speak in terms of uh, guilt or innocence. If you do something wrong, you can be tried in a court, and if you're found guilty, then you'll pay a fine or you'll go to jail. There's consequences for those actions. Understand this document that we read that is Scripture, given to us by the Israelite nation over the course of a couple of thousands of years, uh, is written by a nation with a very different perspective and understanding how relationships in society works. It's called a, a, an honor-shame culture. That is, it is the goal of my life to bring honor to my family name. The, what would prevent me from committing a crime or doing something wrong would be the shame that it would heap not only on myself, but on my loved ones, my family, on my family's name. So uh, about three years prior to this experience, 
Jesus is walking along the shore, and we see actually a parallel story to the one we see here. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, and now at the very end, we see this same story, almost exactly the same story, of a miraculous catch of fish. Jesus, uh, at 30 years old, is taking on the role of a rabbi, and that is amongst the most revered places in all of Israelite society. And see, rabbis, they got to choose the cream of the crop to be their disciples, Jesus went around at 30 years old, playing the role of a rabbi in Israel, doing something entirely different. He walks up to people like tax collectors, which if, if you've had run-ins with uh, the IRS, uh, you don't love it. In Israel, it was even worse, you see, because the tax collectors in Israel, uh, they're working for the Roman government, the oppressive powers, to not only take the taxes owed to Rome, but to take a bunch of extra on the side. And so they're wealthy, but absolutely hated by their own people. And that's who Jesus walks up to. He says, come and, and follow me transformation in life. He walks up to stinky fishermen. The fact that these men are out fishing when Jesus first arrives and they've caught no fish, it's, uh, literally it's almost the same story. Go back and look at it. Uh, he walks up and he says, well, where's all your fish? And of course, they're a little bit angry and offended by that. And, and uh, he says, well, cast your net on the other side. They get this miraculous catch and Jesus says, why don't you leave that behind? Because I'm inviting you to fish for humanity. Like I'm inviting you to a whole new way of being. Jesus calls ordinary people. And here's where it comes back to that conversation of honor and shame. Jesus, a rabbi amongst the most revered uh, positions in Israel, invites ordinary, even lowly people, not the cream of the crop, not those with honorable names and positions in society, and he says, come and be my disciple. And so these 12 men, amongst a lot of other men and women that followed and participated closely in Jesus' ministry and work, uh, but for these 12, they played a position of honor in Israel. And remember, thousands of people are following as Jesus travels from town to town and synagogue to synagogue. People are watching, and these disciples, they're playing these somewhat prestigious roles, getting to, to be a part of this radical ministry, the miracles and all this earth-shattering stuff that, that Israel's experiencing Jesus do. And then in the end, they just abandon him. They run away and hide. And so as our text began today, we find them going back to what they used to do on a, fish, on a stinky fishing boat, right? You find them back in their original life. They've maybe lost sight. Uh, what, what comes next? I don't know what to do. So in exhaustion, Peter says, I'm just going to go fishing for the night. And a bunch of others say, I guess we'll go with you. And they're out there in the boat and again, not catching any fish, uh, which can be a little bit shameful as a fisherman also. I think that's more a Western concept than uh, Eastern. They're working hard, so it wouldn't be shameful. But here they are on a boat, and someone calls from shore. How many fish did you get tonight? And someone swears under their breath. It's probably Peter. Uh, we're not told who it is. Uh, but someone's upset, right? We didn't catch any fish all night long. Cast on the other side, Jesus says. And at this point, they should probably start to notice a trend, remember an experience when he was first calling them. He casts. They cast on the other side, and they catch so many they can hardly uh, haul in the net. In fact, they can't haul in the net. And so uh, they realize Jesus is on the shore. 
And I love the character of Peter. In this text and in so many, Peter is always the first to take action. He's always the first to dive in. I resonate with Peter here. He's impulsive, and he's not thinking about it, but he grabs his, his, his clothes he had stripped down because he's working. He grabs his clothes, and he dives into the water because that boat cannot, it will not get him to the presence of Jesus quick enough. Do you hear his passion? Do you hear his love for Jesus, his excitement in this moment as he realizes he's risen and he's here, he's near, and he's calling out to me? And he swims to the presence of Jesus. The rest, they bring the boat and the net. Someone wastes the time catching or counting the number of fish that they caught right? Everyone else is hanging out with Jesus on the shore, but someone's back there, 20, 21, 22. What am I doing in this moment? But it was 153 fish, apparently. Uh, And Jesus says to them, come, come have breakfast with me. Remember in the beginning I talked about the miraculous and then the ordinary that can be incredibly beautiful? Quite often in our Bibles, and if you're looking in a paper version of the Bible right now, it's probably titled at the top, A Miraculous Catch of Fish. But the beautiful thing about this text, the climax of this text, is not whether or not they caught a lot of fish. The beautiful thing is as they approach Jesus and he invites them, come and have a meal with me. That is the beauty in this resurrection moment, in this appearance, that they get to be in the presence of Jesus again. Jesus already had fish on the fire as they arrive, and so I find it curious that he says to them, go and grab some of those fish so that we can cook them, right? John includes this little detail in the story, and I I think we're catching a glimpse of Jesus inviting them deeper into the moment. Bring what little you have, and in fact, it's not even their own. They caught it because Jesus performed a miracle, right? But he's like, go ahead and bring that to the party. Bring what you have in this moment, and let's share a meal together. Here's what I wanted to talk about today, and and I'm going to spend just a few more minutes in it, and then we're going to take communion today as well as we close out. The miraculous and the ordinary exist in the presence of Jesus, and it can all be sacred, right? For those of us that have walked with Jesus for some time, many of us have experienced those miraculous things in life where God shows up and we receive healing or new direction and hope in life, where he cures a problem or where he invites us to something entirely new. Many of us have experienced the miraculous. But I'm curious how many of us have, on a regular basis or intentionally or with, with great attention, set at the feet of Jesus, set and had a meal with Jesus, experienced the rich and beautiful ordinary nature of being in the presence of a risen Savior. And yes, I use the term Jesus, and and I use that intentionally. Of course, we can speak of being in the presence of God, and we know the Holy Spirit dwells within us, and God is in our presence. So I guess what I'm talking about is attuning our attention to the fact that Jesus has risen and that God is present in our lives. Last night, I was up a lot in the night which isn't terribly common for me, uh, but I just couldn't shut my mind down. And it was last night laying in bed that, that it occurred to me that this text, this story that I've been studying this week and for weeks prior, is actually a remarkable little microcosm of what it is to come to faith, 
to come to know Jesus and experience his presence. Let me walk you through it. This is profound to me. As, as, I, as I found something new in this text this week, at some point in life, we are confronted by our shame, or, or at least our shortcomings, right? That all the effort, all the hard work that used to yield so many results just doesn't seem to be doing the same for me. We come in contact with our frailty, our weakness. You know, life feels like an endless grind. I sleep and then I work and then I go back to bed, right? At some point, all of us in life come to this. And sometimes we talk about this in terms of a midlife crisis. Or sometimes it's just the ordinary happenings of life that weigh on us. And we start to, to recognize my frailty, my weakness. Everything I can muster just isn't doing it for me. And Jesus, the all-knowing, comes and meets us in those moments. Maybe you've experienced that in life, where Jesus comes in the midst of our shame, in the midst of our chaos or our crisis, and Jesus shows up. And at first, it's hard to recognize him, like the disciples can't recognize him on shore. At first, it's hard to recognize that God is present in these moments and what he might be doing and how he might be moving. But in time, we begin to recognize God's nearness. Sometimes we witness miracles, but not always. Remember, the miracle wasn't really the point. The miracle just points to who Jesus was. We realize God's love and his fullness. And in our joy, we dive into the water. We call it baptism, right? And we come up out of that water in the presence of Jesus in new and remarkable and beautiful ways. We rise to new life in the presence of a risen Savior. And he says, bring what you have and sit with me. Have a meal with me. You see, this story culminates, and our spiritual journeys culminate not in those big, remarkable moments, but in the learning to sit at the feet of Jesus, learning to live in the presence of a God who is present with us. That's the culmination. That's the beauty. And the deepest of faith that exists in this room and in the world of Christendom, the deepest of faith is that in which we learn to live in God's presence, that life becomes a prayer, that life becomes a conversation with a God that is present with us, that as we sit to share a meal with each other, we recognize the presence of God amongst us when we realize, oh, this ordinary, everyday activity, oh, this is rich because this is time spent with a risen Savior. So today, as we close out, we've been brief today, and that's okay. This, this is our, our text, and this is what I felt compelled uh, to, to draw out of it today. As we conclude today, we're going to take communion. Now, remember, communion uh, is an opportunity for us to commune with God. We remember Christ amongst us. We remember Jesus and his, uh, and his death and his resurrection as we take communion. So it is communion with God. It's also communion with each other. It's significant that we do this together. So at times, we'll have people holding the, the elements, the bread and the juice, and you'll come and receive that from another person. We're being reminded of the communal aspect that we, we do this together. Uh, at other times, we'll pause and we'll all take communion together. Today, I'm going to do it differently, and it's a little bit in isolation which is a little bit strange because it's not going to as effectively represent the communion with each other. But I wanted to create this moment, just we take communion every week and we'll do it in different ways. I wanted to create this moment to be contemplative, 
I wanted to invite us to be quiet and still in this moment and to really hone in and try to focus in community. We still take this communion together, but to really hone in and focus on God who is present. So here's what I'm going to invite you to do in a minute as we uh, begin to close out. There'll be some quiet music in the background, but this is a still and contemplative space and let the silence be okay. That's, it's very okay in this moment. I'm going to invite you uh, to go and grab communion and bring it back to your seat. If you're sitting with someone, you're welcome to turn to each other and take it together. Um, but we're going to let you take it in your own time. Over the course of the next three or four minutes, you'll get to take communion. And I'd encourage you to pause a moment before you take communion. And uh, you can do whatever you want with this time. But here's one idea. Take a moment just to envision in your mind this scene in which Peter and the apostles get to sit around a fire with Jesus, just beginning to realize he's risen from the dead. He has returned. Smell the the fire, the campfire. Smell the fish. Think about the sand on the shore. Think about Jesus and looking up to see him risen from the dead. And then in that, say thank you and take communion. Okay, I'm going to pray, and you're invited to grab communion and at your seats. Let's be especially reflective of the fact that God is present with us as we remember Jesus, as we share in communion. God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time and opportunity. And uh, Spirit, we know that you are with us, that you are amongst us near and, and in us. And so we invite you to reveal to us your presence. God, we're thankful for your continued love and mission in this world uh, that we might walk with you again, Jesus. We remember your body broken and your blood poured out. uh, And and God, we are thankful for resurrection, for new life. Um, As we reflect today, God, uh, we pray you will help us to know more fully your love and your presence. In Jesus' name, amen.